0: But we'll begin our time simply by beginning with these opening words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 10, beginning in verse 1. And that's all we'll read as we start. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 1. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. So a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. If you would, you could be seated. Very brief, I know, but it's the Word of God, so we stand out of respect for it. As we begin this morning, I feel comfortable enough to confess something to you all about a weakness of mine. That weakness comes in the area of cooking. I'm a terrible, terrible cook. My son will swear to you that I'm the best in the world because I can make spaghetti in a way that just amazes him every time as... Only a four-year-old can be amazed by spaghetti. But for the most part, I'm pretty terrible. And it seems that no matter how many times my wife gives me the opportunity to try, no matter how many times I confidently say, yes, I can step in for you today, I mess it up just about every single time. No matter how many times I look at the recipe, I forget an ingredient, I forget a step, and I am always amazed by my failure. This happened most recently, just a few weeks ago, when my wife was busy and needed me to make chicken spaghetti for the family. I don't know if you've ever made chicken spaghetti, but let me assure you, it is not a complicated meal at all. It's basically noodles and cheese and some chicken. And I was confident in my ability to make that recipe, and, and like always, I looked at the recipe uh, 60, 70 times in the course of making this you know, four-step meal. I was confident I was doing the right thing, and then... And then the one bad mistake came when it came time to add the cayenne pepper. I like cayenne pepper. I like food spicy. I apparently don't know how much cayenne pepper is needed to make things spicy because I looked at the recipe and in my infinite wisdom I thought, yeah, that's not enough cayenne pepper. I should add to this. Not knowing, not only is it going to be too spicy, but my wife actually, when she makes it, cuts it in half from what the recipe calls because she knows that we have a seven-year-old and four-year-old child with very sensitive palates. I was not thinking of my children when making this meal and I thought, no, I know I know better. I know better than what this recipe calls for. And so I added, I don't know, double, I honestly can't even tell you because I wasn't paying attention. And I was proud of the meal because it looked good. But then, of course, came time for my wife and children to dig in. And in about one bite, I realized my terrible mistake. Because instead of saying, oh, this is really good, Daddy, I was greeted with my children waving their hands in a cartoonish way in front of their face, as if they were about to melt in front of me. They were horrified by what I had fed them. My wife, in all of her love and grace, looked at me with those eyes that said, what did you do? What did you add to this? And I, of course, did what any good husband would do. I played dumb, and I said, I don't know. I don't know what happened, Jamie. And I just moved on, fully knowing that while I had technically followed the recipe, that one mistake, that one mistake had cost the entire meal. Even if you know nothing about cooking, you understand that's the way it works. It's not just Enough to have the right ingredients. You have to have the right amount of ingredients. It's not, just to, it's not enough just to follow most of the steps. You have to follow each and every step in the specific order it's given. And just one mistake in the process can wreck the entire thing. And the same thing is true when we come to the words of Solomon regarding folly and wisdom. For what we have seen time and time again in the book of Ecclesiastes is that it's never enough just to know the right, the right information. It's not enough just to do a bunch of things. Now, Solomon reminds us as we begin our chapter today, and as he'll really paint a picture of, even if we do a lot of right things, just, just a little bit of folly mixed in can wreck the whole attempt. Just a few too many ingredients, a few too many words can, can ruin any other attempt we would have otherwise to speak in a loving and gracious manner. Just one too many actions can suddenly wreck the entire pursuit we are after. As believers, this is key for us to understand because all of us like to think of ourselves as wise, I think. We like to believe that other people look at us and see a wise person, but what we may not realize the course of our daily life is, is we're actually following a, a different type of recipe altogether. We're, we're actually putting together something that will re- result in nothing but foolishness. And as we'll see yet again, as we do that, we will find ourselves not only frustrated and frustrating to be around, but we'll find ourselves exhausted and, and asking, much like I asked around the dinner table, oh, I, "What happened? I have no idea where I've messed up." And so my hope is, as we examine these words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes ten, we might remember again that that basic recipe for folly versus foolishness. We might be able to to versus wisdom. We might be able to look through these various really proverbs that Solomon speaks in here. And compare it to our own lives and ask ourselves, okay, in my own daily life, am I putting together something that will result in wisdom or am I simply following the same routine that the world around me does? And as a result, am I just producing more and more folly? My prayer is that as we walk away from today, we do not walk away frustrated by our own folly, but we might be reminded that the task is not impossible because the calling is pretty clear. With that being said, let me go and begin our time in a prayer and we'll get dig in. Father in heaven, we again thank you for our time together today. God, as we dig into Ecclesiastes 10, I pray that we do not look at it as a word of discouragement for us, God, as just another reminder of how messed up we are or how many mistakes we tend to make. For God, as we read these words, all of us must acknowledge that we do make many mistakes and we fall short so frequently. But God, as we read the words of Solomon, I pray we might find encouragement and pray pray we might be reminded that that wisdom while requiring great discernment is not necessarily all that complicated day to day. The calling you've given us is not beyond the abilities you've given us and most importantly, it is not beyond your son Jesus Christ who is at work in us. And so God, speak through us at this time. As always, remove all distractions from us, God. Build up this body of Christ in these next few minutes, God. And cause us to be all the more prepared to serve the world in which you've placed us, God, and to do so as wise ambassadors of your Son and of your kingdom. It is in your Son's precious name that we pray all these things, and that we ask all these things. Amen. As we begin to look at Ecclesiastes ten, we'll again look at two different recipes, if you will, two different pictures, one of a fool and one of a wise person. You'll notice we will not read through the passage in order because if you read through Ecclesiastes 10, you see it, it reads very much like a, a chapter in Proverbs. So there are a variety of statements, not necessarily connected, but all of which I think ultimately lead to one general picture. So we will be skipping around a little bit. But as we do so, and as we begin by considering this first recipe for, for folly, I want to look at two general areas that Solomon speaks to in which people generally make their mistakes which people are prone to produce that folly that we all would rather avoid. Those two areas are no doubt um, uh, familiar to any of us who have read through any proverb or any Ecclesiastes because they are the areas of words or speech and work. We begin with perhaps the most familiar, that idea of of a, a fool's reckless speech. We see this tendency in the life of a fool in a few passages here in Ecclesiastes 10, but primarily, if you will, or Ecclesiastes 10, if you will look at Ecclesiastes 10, verses 12 through 14, and you see the picture of foolish speech once again. Ecclesiastes 10, beginning in verse 12, he says, Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his talking is folly, and the end of it is wicked madness. Yet the fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after him? Here in these few words, you have this this great summary of of what the speech of a fool sounds like. And one of the things that marks the speech of a fool, of course, are the number of words the fool chooses to use. Specifically, there in verse 14, he says the fool multiplies words. He can't keep his mouth shut, Solomon says. This is not the only place Solomon says this. Very famously, back in the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19, Many of you have heard this proverb regarding speech. There he says, When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Time and time again, when Solomon is attempting to describe the life of a fool, whether it's in Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, he hones in on on this practice of speech. And one of the dead giveaways of a fool, he says, is that a fool will speak way too much, far more than is required. This was an observation that Solomon could make easily in his day, and one can only imagine how many verses Solomon would dedicate to this concept if he were around today. For Solomon was blessed by God to live in an age before social media existed. I mean, in Solomon's day, if a fool wanted to talk, they at least needed an audience. That is, someone in front of them. But we, of course, live in a world where it's completely different, don't we? For even if you do not have someone asking you to speak sitting next to you, well, don't worry. You can hop online and, and declare your opinions for all of the watching world on the worldwide internet. You can send someone a message on Facebook Messenger. You can send them a message on Instagram, on Snapchat, on any number of social media accounts that I don't know about because I'm not in youth ministry anymore. There are an endless list of tools you can use if you want to get your opinion known. Maybe you can become a blogger. Maybe you can record yourself and put out a podcast. Whatever you want to do, the resources are endless. And on one hand, of course, this could be seen as a good thing. A lot of good resources means there's a lot of opportunities for wise people to get out there. But, of course, wise people aren't talking all that much, Solomon says. No, it's the fool that's going to fill the airwaves for the most part. It's the fool that's going to feel like, oh, here's a thought. I need to tweet that out. The world needs to know. That's not the sign of wisdom. That's the sign of someone who really thinks highly of themselves and thinks everyone around them needs to know every thought that comes across their mind. And this, of course, is dangerous because as Solomon says, in a multitude of words, there will be folly. Inevitably, you will mess up. Inevitably, you will reveal that folly to the world around you. In the case of a fool, this is common, not just in in how frequently they speak, but But it's also heard in in the way they speak. It's also heard in in the words they choose to use. That second idea of of a fool's language is is caught a little earlier in Ecclesiastes 10. If you will read up in Ecclesiastes 10 verse 3 and you see another picture of, of a fool and what he is declaring. Here in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 verse 3 he says, Even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking and he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. Now, the New American Standard here uses the language of demonstrates his folly, but if you have the ESV or another translation, I think others get it a little more correct here. Instead of saying that he demonstrates his folly, they interpret this as saying he says to everyone that he is a fool. And this can be taken one of two ways. Commentators agree that that either this is a picture of, uh, of a fool walking along the path and saying, hey everyone, look at me, I'm a fool. Right? That's one thing they might do. Or the other perhaps equally true statement of a fool is that as they walk along this path, they're pointing at everyone else and saying, hey everyone, he's a fool, she's a fool, look how depraved that other person is. In other words, and I think we can see pictures of this in our culture all the time, a fool's speech is characterized both by this frequency of words, but also by this pattern of speech in which they are either saying, look how great I am, or look how terrible they are. Really everything can be summarized in one of those two statements. We don't have to use our imaginations to think of how many people do this today. Again, I I spoke of social media earlier, but a high percentage of posts online are are that. A high percentage of of headlines that you can click on online are that. It's click on this and see how dumb this person is. It's what it mostly boils down to, isn't it? That is the speech of a fool. They cannot help themselves. They must constantly speak highly of themselves, defend their reputation, destroy another person's reputation. And why do they do this? Well, because their ultimate aim is just to make much of themselves. And when that is the idol of their heart, as Jesus says, ultimately from the overflow of that heart, from that idolatry, the mouth will speak. Listen to, to anyone long enough, and over time you will see them reveal their own idols to you. Over time, you will hear them speak of what means most to them, what matters most to them. And in the case of a fool, that thing that matters most to them is themselves. And so Solomon says when when looking for a fool or when putting a recipe together for folly, it always involves this reckless use of words. To use that imagery of me using cayenne pepper earlier, it's as if the fool says, yeah, other people are speaking less, but I know better. I'm just going to dump all my words on there and people will learn to appreciate me. And so they just throw out their opinions as if everything that they could say must be said. And in so doing, they not only exhaust themselves, but they reveal their folly to the watching world. As we look back to Ecclesiastes 10, however, you see it's not just in the folly's speech in which their, their folly is revealed, Not only is there a wasted word here or there from the fool, there is also this concept of of wasted effort or wasted toil. And this is perhaps surprising to many of us because when we think of, of what a fool looks like in Scripture, I think we typically assume laziness. A fool lays in bed all day, turns back and forth, but never actually gets anything done. Solomon himself speaks of fools in that manner at times in Proverbs. But if you look back at Ecclesiastes 10, you see that this fool is actually working quite hard. They're exerting a lot of effort from the moment they get up to the moment they go to bed. You can see this in a variety of ways. We read already in verse 3 of Ecclesiastes 10 that this fool is getting up and walking. They're headed down a path. It might be the wrong path. And they might be filling their day with speaking about themselves or demeaning others. But they're walking. They're moving. They're going to work. Not only that, but jump down, if you will, to verses 8 through 10. And you again see this, the exertion of a fool in their work. 8 through 10 of Ecclesiastes 10, he says, He who digs a pit may fall into it. A serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them. He who splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. We'll stop there for the time being. In these verses, again, you see the fool is not sitting on his laurels at home. The fool's out there. He's getting stuff done. He's digging a pit. He's building the wall. He's cutting up wood. He is filling his day with a variety of activities. And later on in chapter 10, Solomon speaks of of these same fools maybe enjoying some traditional uh, acts of leisure. They feast. They drink. They do other things that, that Solomon praises elsewhere. And then even as they go home at night in verse 20, as we'll see here in a moment, even then their their mind continues to spin, their wheels continue to spin, they, they continue to toil over and over and over again. And all these things then you see that the fool is hard at work. He is going through countless steps in the course of his day, trying to accomplish that task that he has in mind. The problem then, of course, is not whether or not he is exerting effort. The problem is the aim of that effort, isn't it? For again, consider the words back in verses 8 through 10 of Ecclesiastes. What we must understand here is when Solomon speaks of digging a pit and building a wall, he's not talking about uh, community service projects. No, the language particularly of digging a pit is language used of someone who is trying to trap their enemies. You see the same example spoken of earlier in Solomon's own writing. In passages like Proverbs 26... If you would turn back there, because I think this this is a good example of the life of a fool. Look back, if you will, to Proverbs chapter 26, verses 26 through 28. Here again, we see both the example of speech as well as, as efforts, everything that consumes the foolish person. There in Proverbs chapter 26, beginning in verse 26, Solomon says this, Though his hatred covers itself with guile, his wickedness will be revealed before the assembly. He who digs a pit will fall into it. He who rolls a stone it will come back on him. A lying tongue hates those, those it crushes and a flattering mouth works ruin. Again, there's this language of digging a pit, of building, and, and the idea behind this again is it's trying to trap others. It's trying to harm others. But as Solomon says, ultimately they're just harming themselves. Now the aim of the fool is the aim of a person who is working hard but again, they're working hard to make much of themselves and bring others down. You can see this play out in in a variety of ways here in Ecclesiastes 10, but I think the the most powerful picture is the toil that, that encapsulates them even when they're back home in their bedchamber where they should be resting. Look there, I think, at the end of A Fool's Day in verse 20 of Ecclesiastes 10. It says, Furthermore, in your bedchamber, do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms, do not curse a rich man. For a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. Ultimately, Solomon here is giving a warning about speaking poorly of those in leadership. But in this, I think we have this brilliant picture of something that—that that I hope is familiar to all of you, because I certainly can relate to it. It's the picture of a fool once he has returned home. Right, and the location of this is key because he's in his bedchamber, he's in the place of rest. But instead of resting. Instead of sleeping, what does the fool do? What is he toiling over? Oh, he's cursing those in leadership. Even after he's out of the public eye, he's driven by this bitterness, by this frustration. His mind cannot be at rest because he knows there's people out there that have questioned him. He knows there's people out there that are more foolish than he is, and he can't stand it. And again, I I, I say this is a familiar experience, And perhaps many of you can relate to it. For how many hours have have you wasted in the course of your life just thinking bitter thoughts about someone you do not care for? How much time do we waste in the car dreaming of that that dream scenario where we can finally confront that boss we don't like? And we play out that routine, we play out that conversation, we say, oh, if I just had that chance, then I would really give it to him." How many minutes do kids waste in junior high and high school? complaining about the teacher that they dislike at school, complaining about a class that they hate to take. Even when they're not in that class, it consumes them. It takes up time. It takes up rest. How many of us spend time lying awake at night in bed thinking how we we wish we married a different spouse, how we wish we lived in a different place, how we wish we had a different job? As we do this, we, I think, exemplify the picture of a fool here. We are toiling away in our bedroom instead of resting. And in that toiling, in those bitter thoughts, what is driving us? What is consuming us? What's the world? We're consumed with with how others view us, we're consumed with how others speak of us. We're, We're consumed with the desire to be treated better than we are. And as we do this, we exhibit sadly the folly that is painted here in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. All of us can relate to these practices. All of us can can describe this, this temptation to speak more than we should, to want to defend ourselves when really there's no need to overwork ourselves to the aim of just again making much of ourselves. But when we do this, as Solomon has said so many times in Ecclesiastes already, but but as he paints a picture yet again here in Ecclesiastes 10, when we do this, the only results are those of frustration and, and of exhaustion. Not only for you as as you do this, but but for everyone in your surrounding community. This again is one of the most damning things about folly, that it doesn't just impact you, it impacts everyone around you. Solomon highlights this particularly when it comes to those in authority. Look at how he describes the foolish person that rules over a nation. In Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 15, or or, sorry, verse 15. 15 and 16, there Solomon says the toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a child and whose princes feast in the morning. Woe to you, O land, if you are ruled by a childish person. Woe to you, O land, if you're ruled by someone who doesn't know when to shut their mouth who doesn't know when to just stay focused and just keep on track. Woe to you, and why is that? Well, as he is mentioning here, because when they are ruled by a fool, when that fool is in authority, they will misuse their resources. Verse 17, Blessed are you, O land whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate times, whose princes uh, for strength and not for drunkenness. The foolish ruler who is ruled by his childish, childish mindset doesn't know when to stop and they don't know when to celebrate once so they misuse their time they misuse the resources earlier on if you read verses five through seven you see the same mentality where when a fool rules you have those who could actually do something those who are actually in power inhabit places in society where they have no authority where suddenly their ability to help change is taken away and it's all done so because they're ruled by a child we don't have to go into picking on any favorite politician from history to find plenty of examples of this, right? World history is full of this. But what is perhaps more helpful to us, instead of digging in and talking how true this is, we can consider our true it is just in our own daily lives. For we all have experienced the frustration of being under the leadership of a fool, have we not? I mean, consider the words of Paul to fathers in Ephesians 4, 6. What does, what does Paul have to say to fathers? Do you remember? In Ephesians chapter 6, he has to tell fathers, do not provoke your children in anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. Why does Paul have to tell fathers not to provoke their kids? Because fathers will naturally provoke their kids, because fathers will speak harshly instead of speaking in grace when grace is needed. Because fathers will suddenly draw the line in the sand as if we can go no further than this. And while discipline is essential, of course, we've all seen the examples of parents where suddenly they, they make some hard and fast rule that's only going to frustrate their kid. And as they do this, they are demonstrating the mind of a, fo- of a fool. They're demonstrating that they don't understand the times. They don't understand how to interact with their kid, that Temptation, of course, does not simply exist for fathers. Mothers can do the same thing. The reason why all these warnings and commands in Scripture have to be given is because we're all prone to disobey them. So we're all prone to not submit to authority. We're all prone to to lie. We're all prone to be prideful. We're all prone to act like a fool. And when we do, it can frustrate whatever environment we're in. Again, to go back to the example of the workplace. How many of you have worked under the leadership of of a foolish boss? At times, it's comical, right? And you can maybe go home and tell stories of you'll never guess what he or she said today. And it's funny. But day to day, it's just exhausting, isn't it? Because you see them waste so many precious resources. You're stuck in unending meetings with them and you're thinking, oh man, time could be spent so much better elsewhere. Why do I have to be here? And it's exhausting, it's frustrating. You see it in the home, you see it in the business place, you see it in politics, you see it everywhere, and ultimately, of course, you see it in your own heart. Where you try and try to do that which is good, but suddenly you realize you've stepped over the line. You've said one too many things, and you've wrecked whatever work you tried to accomplish. You've set one too many rules, and in the process, you've frustrated others, and you've left yourself equally frustrated, equally exhausted. And this is ultimately what is so tragic about all of these pictures of folly throughout Ecclesiastes. This is what is so maddening to Solomon because when he, when he looks at this, when he describes this, he's not simply describing some comedic summary of the world in which we live. And again, there are some comedic things in this chapter. No, he is speaking of that which is tragic for Solomon like Christ in the New Testament, looks at the culture around them and they see people who are exhausted and worn out and for no good reason. And we certainly can relate to that exhaustion, can't we? We certainly can relate to the experience of returning to our bed at night and thinking, oh my goodness, where did I go wrong today? Will I ever feel at rest Will I ever feel confident at the end of any given day? Will my marriage ever be better? Will my kids ever respect me? Will I ever be happy and content in this life? Well, thankfully, thankfully, I think the answer is in the positive here. Because just as Solomon is able to easily depict the recipe of folly, that that overuse of words, the overuse of, of wasted effort, he's also able to speak to the reality of wisdom. And the rest and the satisfaction that can come in that, particularly in terms, again, of of speech and work. Again, look back with me if you will. See this recipe for wisdom beginning with proper speech. We read this already, but it's helpful to look again at Ecclesiastes 10, verse 12, where describing the speech of a wise person, Solomon says, Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious. The speech of the wise is characterized principally by grace, by gentleness. The words of the speech then are are described, both here in Ecclesiastes as well throughout Proverbs, as genuinely helpful to people around you. We'll talk about this again when we talk about the the ultimate results, but but throughout Proverbs, he speaks time and time again of, of speech that is genuinely helpful to the watching world. Consider if you look back at Proverbs, say, 13. Look at Proverbs 13. I believe this is right here. Proverbs 13, verse... Oh, let's see here. Verse 2. Proverbs 13, verse 2, it says, From the fruit of a man's mouth he enjoys good, but the desire of the treacherous is violent. Again, from the fruit of a man's mouth, this is fruitful. It is desirable. It is ultimately good. In a similar way, in Proverbs chapter 16, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 23, we read this The heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Again, you see this picture throughout Proverbs, just as he paints in Ecclesiastes, the speech of the wise is desirable, it's attractive, it's beautiful. It's genuinely helpful to those around. Now, of course, as we'll see here in a moment, at times that requires correction, it requires action, but overall, overall, the speech of the wise is both limited compared to the speech of the fool, that is, the wise person knows when to shut his mouth, And when he chooses to open his mouth, he speaks with grace. He speaks with sweetness. He speaks in a way that is persuasive, that is edifying to both himself as well as to others. And the reason for this, of course, is because the aim of his speech is completely different from the aim of the fool, isn't it? The fool is either saying, look at me, or look how shameful he is. The wise person is completely different. The wise person might say, look at me, but it's in terms of, oh my goodness, look at me. I have messed up royally in this. I have sinned, and instead of looking at me, look to Christ. Look at God. You can think of the words of the psalmist. And in, in, in Psalms, David uses those famous words, What is man, O God, that you should think of him? I think also of the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18, or the picture that, that Jesus paints in Luke 18. There in Luke 18, Jesus draws attention to this picture of the Pharisee and the tax collector who are both praising. The Pharisee, of course, is crying out to God and saying, thank you, God, that I'm not like everyone else. In other words, he's acting like he's speaking to God, but really he's talking to himself. And the complete opposite picture there is the tax collector who can't even bear to look up to heaven, but instead lies prostrate on the ground, crying out to God, crying out for mercy. Be merciful to me, God, for I am a sinner. That's the wise person who stays on the ground. The fool speaks of himself and thinks highly of himself. The wise person thinks very little of himself and thinks much of God. And that is reflected in their speech. The wise person will speak, but they'll speak of God. They'll speak of his glory. They'll speak of that which is good and edifying, that which is proper Not only that, but in Ecclesiastes 10, we see they are also wiser when it comes to their work, to their efforts. For again, the wise person is not sitting back at home. No, the wise person is also pursuing work. They're exerting effort throughout their day, just as the fool is doing. It's just the effort is more purposeful. It is more direct. Again, we read this earlier, but look back, if you will, at Ecclesiastes 10, verse 10. There in verse 10 through 11, he says, if the axe is dull and he does not sharpen it, its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. If the serpent bites before being charmed, there's no profit for the charmer. In these two verses, we see two attributes of wise work. The first is that common proverb that you've perhaps heard today is work smarter, not harder. The wise person is able to look at the dull axe and they say, hey, you just got to sharpen that. There's a practicality to wisdom here where a wise person is able to look at just everyday tasks and knows how to do them better, more effectively. They're not just exerting effort. They're being smart about it. They're taking the time to step back, look at the lay of the land, figure out the best approach, and then they act. There's wisdom in that patience, wisdom in that effort. But at the same time, in verse 11, there's also wisdom that is needed when, when acting quickly. For in that latter picture... Solomon again says, if the serpent bites before being charmed, there's no profit in the charmer. Here I think you see the, the other side of the spectrum in which wisdom is needed. In the first picture, the wise person needs to step back, survey the situation, sharpen the axe, move forward. The second picture is the work of a snake charmer. Probably not the profession any of you have chosen. But you can perhaps understand the need of being quick in that profession. For Solomon says, the snake charmer can't sit back and look at the snake and think, hmm what is the best way to deal with this venomous serpent? No, the snake charmer has to act quickly to take away the threat. But the the need in both these cases is, is knowing how to act in these very different situations. Many people are either very good at sitting back and doing nothing or very good at immediately speaking up and acting quickly. You think of Peter in the New Testament. Peter was a great example of the latter category. Peter knew he needed to act and he needed to act now. And so when Jesus is under threat of being arrested, boom, cut off a guy's ear. Done, let's move on. Right? That's Peter's mindset, and a lot of believers have that mindset. But that's a foolish mindset. That's not always the calling. In the same way, there are other times when you do need to act. You need to speak up, but wisdom understands those different situations. You see, again, examples of it throughout Ecclesiastes, but even in our own chapter, if you look back at Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 4, you see this in relationship to angry, foolish people. There in 10 verse 4, he says, if the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position because composure allays great great offenses. Again, you have this need for, for discretion, for discernment. The wise person is able to see the anger, in this case, of their boss, and instead of packing up their things and saying, that's it, I've had enough, I'm going home. No, in this situation, the wise person knows, all right, I'm going to be gentle in my response. I'm going to stay put. I'm going to do my job because over time I know that might win this person over. Again, that requires great wisdom, great discernment to know when to act and when, when to just continue on in your role. In other words, the wise person is, is never excused for, for laziness, for apathy. Now, the wise person goes throughout their day and wisely understands every word that they say is to be spoken with a purpose. Every action that they participate in is to be participated in with a specific aim, with a specific focus. And everything they do then, they're on that one path. They are one mind. Obviously, the greatest example of this that we have in Scripture is Jesus, isn't it? And it's amazing to look at the example of Jesus in the New Testament because he regularly both says things and does things that are astonishing to the disciples. He regularly chooses not to act when the disciples really think he needs to act and he regularly chooses to say things that the disciples think, why did you say that? And from an earthly perspective, it would appear as if Jesus had the worst possible strategy for anyone who claims to be Messiah. Worst strategy ever. He's attracted a bunch of riff raff. He chooses just terrible disciples. He confronts the people in leadership that could actually help him out. And yet, in all these choices, he's able to say in passages like John 6.38 or John 12.49, I say nothing except that which comes from the Father. I do nothing except that which is according to my Father's will. Think of that. Every single word Jesus speaks is in perfect alignment with the character and plan of God. Every word. In the same way, every choice he makes, every decision he makes is in perfect alignment with God with his plan, and we might say, well, of course, he's the son of God, but, but we also must understand that, that we are called ultimately to serve God in the same way. We're called not to waste our words, we're called not to waste our time to act according to this one purpose, to make much of God and make little of ourselves. And as Solomon says time and time again, time again in Ecclesiastes 10, the effects of this wise speech, of this wise work, is not just satisfying God, although that's the most important thing, There's also, again, a satisfaction to the community. There's a sweet satisfaction to the person who experiences this in his own life. Again, looking to the example of governing officials. In Ecclesiastes 10, verse 17. Having spoken of the foolish leaders, he then says, Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. The point of Solomon here is just as there is a curse that comes with being under the leadership of a child, there is great enjoyment to be had under the leadership of someone who understands what they're doing. There's a certain rest that comes with being under the leadership of someone that you can actually trust. Again, think of the benefit of this in our own homes. Think of of how much easier it is to, to be a parent if you are lovingly leading your kid and not provoking them to anger every day. Think how much easier it is for you spouses if you're married to someone who's loving you and the way Christ loves the church. For wives, think of it how easy it is for you husbands if your wife is is really submitting out of love and joy to you. There's a peace, there's a satisfaction that comes with wisdom. Something that even the world around us acknowledges and, and longs for. But it's something that can only be found when we follow the basic word that is put before us. There is sweet satisfaction and sweet rest when we are not driven to to speak up at every opportunity. There is sweet rest when we are not driven by that desire to to do yet another thing, to prove our worth, to prove our brilliance to the world around us. There is so much freedom and rest in knowing the simplicity of your calling. Not feeling the need to constantly speak up, not feeling the need to constantly correct the world, not feeling the need to constantly do more, but to just rest, and do those simple things God has put before us. And again, even as I say this, all of this sounds great, but, but it sounds a little overly idealistic, doesn't it? It sounds too easy to say, okay, just don't talk too much and, and just have a more purpose behind all of your effort. If you do that, you'll be fine. Because ultimately, what's going to happen you're going to say too much. You're going to do too much. And at the end of the day, you're going to be frustrated with yourself, exhausted and dissatisfied. And so we must understand that ultimately the calling of Solomon, and even more so the calling of Scripture, is never be better, do better, do more. That's never the calling of Scripture. That's law. No, there, there's a missing ingredient in all of this, of course. The missing step and that is, of course, Not a thing we do, but it's a person. It's Jesus Christ. The astonishing thing in all of this, of course, is that, again, God does not expect us to get all of these things right, to speak perfectly, to act perfectly, but he does give us Jesus Christ who not only offers us rest, not only offers us this perfect recipe, but he offers us this example and he offers us this constant sense of of corrective, of, of a correction, it begins, of course, with that basic offer of Christ. We'll read this here in a moment, but in Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30, you have that precious offer of Christ to rest. Jesus doesn't look out on the masses and say, okay, I want you, you, and you, because you're working hard. You can, you can do with, uh, with a little more load of work. You can do more, so I want you on my team. Jesus looks out at the exhausted masses and says, come to me, all of you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus looks at the overworked, overtoiled masses and he has compassion for them because he sees the dissatisfaction, he sees the exhaustion, and he offers that rest that of course can only come in faith and repentance. And this is equally true both for believers and unbelievers, isn't it? For unbeliever, if you want rest, if you want satisfaction, if you want that sweet aim of wisdom, it begins with God. It begins by repenting of your sins and putting your trust in Jesus. That's it but as believers we never move past that act. We wake up every day and we are just as much in need of the cross as we were the day before. Every single day you are just as much likely to fall into some foolish effort as you were the day before. It's gonna happen. And so you need to constantly look back at Christ, constantly be amazed by his offer for rest and find it purely in Jesus. Having said that, there is also still something to be said for the example that Jesus Christ is in this as well. And again, if we ever are asking, okay, Solomon, but what does it look like to speak in this way? What does it look like to, to exert effort in the way that you are calling for? Well, well, look to Jesus Christ. That's not meant to reduce our faith to what would Jesus do, although that is certainly a helpful question to ask in everything. But in all honesty, read the Gospels, read the way Jesus spoke. And as you read those things, ask yourself honestly, do I sound like that? Do my words reflect someone who calls himself gentle and lowly? Do my words reflect the compassion of Jesus? Or have I reduced Jesus to turning tables over in the temple? In the same way, have I been reduced in my ability to address sin to the point where I just look lackadaisical and lazy in society? And I'm missing those other points where Jesus confronts sin when it needs to be confronted. In all this, I'm not trying to reduce Jesus to this overly simplistic picture, but I am trying to get us to sound and look more like Jesus in our speech. In the same way, look at the way Jesus works. Look at what concerns him. Look at who he spends time with. And ask yourself, is this reflected in my own work ethic? Is this what I'm concerned about? Do I wake up early after a good night's rest to spend time in prayer with God or do I stay up late toiling in my brain over bitter thoughts regarding how unhappy I am with my life? All of us could grow in that area I trust. But again, just to ensure that we do not leave this place feeling beaten down and frustrated by our own failures, let us also remember that as Jesus Christ offers us that rest and salvation, as Jesus Christ offers us that example, Jesus Christ is also our constant corrective. He is that constant person who will come in and, and make up for our falliness, for our foolishness, for our failures. Praise God for the fact that on the day of judgment he will not say, okay, let's weigh out your words, believer. Let's see if you said one too many statements. Let's see if you made one too many posts on Facebook. Oh, you did. You're out. Let's praise God that we do not have that picture of judgment that the religion of Islam does that weighs out our good deeds for our bad deeds because ultimately we all fall short. We'd all go to hell. Let's find great encouragement in the fact that Christ brings us into glory. Christ will bring us into perfection. Christ will bring us into that ultimate rest. And so daily, as we lay our head down at night, the reason why we're able to stop toiling over is not because we've done a great job, but it's because Christ has already accomplished it all for us. And so we rest in that. Here in a moment, we'll have great opportunity to remember that rest, to remember exactly what that means because we get to come together for communion And so oftentimes, as we think of communion, it becomes this overly somber event where we feel really guilty of how much we've messed up in front of God the previous week. And it reduces communion to this somber funeral service. But that's not communion. Communion is intended to be ultimately an encouragement to you, brother and sister in Christ. It's a reminder of where your rest is. It's a reminder of the fact that the work has been accomplished. And so here in a moment after I pray as Jeff comes up and the band begins to play we encourage you if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ please take this moment to rest in the finished work of Christ. Take a moment to partake in his in this remembrance of his sacrifice of his body and of his blood. If you're an unbeliever we ask that you simply stay seated and consider the offer of Jesus Christ. My prayer is that ultimately you place your trust in him this morning. But for both parties as we begin this time, let us read from Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. There once again Jesus says, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let us go to God in prayer and let us take great joy in this rest that he offers us. Father in heaven, have mercy upon us as sinners, God. For we are all prone to talk far too much. We are all prone to toil away in hopes that we might make much of ourselves. And we can all so easily waste away our nights of rest thinking over our frustrations of the day before, thinking over the frustrations that lie ahead of us, God. We live in a world that is exhausting and we ourselves are exhausted from it. But God, I pray that our exhaustion is not caused by our own folly. God, convict us of the sin where we are guilty of this. Show us where our speech does not reflect you. Show us where our our own work reflects that of a fool. cause us to see that there is something far more beautiful, far more resting, far more satisfactory in wisdom and ultimately in your son Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for the fact that you provided a sacrifice that we could not provide. That You've done a work that we could never accomplish. Thank you for the fact that you promise us eternal rest in this God. As we come together today, Lord, at this moment, might that be a precious word of encouragement to all of us who are believers. And anyone who is exhausted and still in their own sin, God, I pray this might be a moment of brokenness and repentance before you. Bless this time now, we pray, as we take part in this blessed, blessed tradition. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.